Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network Revision podcast. Today, we are continuing our series on Macbeth, and we have a very exciting episode for you on the presentation of Macbeth as a tragic hero. So, our Macbeth expert is undoubtedly Emily. So, what can you tell us about the role of the tragic hero in this play? So, we touched on this a little last week in our introduction and our contextual podcast. But basically, the idea of a tragic hero comes from the poetics by Aristotle, where he basically explored the conventions of a typical tragedy. Um, And one of those conventions was the existence of a tragic hero as the protagonist. So basically, a tragic hero, Aristotle said, should be a man of importance. So he should have some sort of noble standing in the setting of the play. And we can see straight away that Macbeth conforms to that with his title of Thane and as a soldier at the start. And something that Aristotle says then is he must be serious and have done great things or be capable of greatness, but not entirely honourable. And the purpose for this is that a tragedy is supposed to arouse pity and fear in the audience. And Aristotle says, our pity is excited by misfortunes undeservedly suffered and our terror by some resemblance between the sufferer and ourselves. So basically, the idea is that the hero should not be entirely virtuous, not absolutely honourable, and they must have some kind of flaw in their personality. And this is what we call the fatal flaw or the hamartia. And the idea in the tragedy is that this fatal flaw or hamartia will cause the character's demise. And that is what makes the hero a tragic hero because they suffer this downfall and that is how there's almost this catharsis at the end for a reader who feels like almost as if the hero's got their comeuppance. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's quite a popular um, kind of trope in kind of in, in lots of stories and lots of fiction. I mean, we see it in movies like The Godfather, you see it to an extent in, in various other presentations. Um, because it's a, it's a human story, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely. Idea of, 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 that you, the, the, the tragic hero falls prey to the kind of temptations which every person in their life to, to varying extents comes across mm-hmm. um, and these these stories serve to play out what would happen if you if you do follow that because the tragic hero kind of is, is is the vehicle of their own downfall absolutely anything else. They, they have agency in that respect um, and that's why the tragic hero that's why it's worth doing this episode on is because it's very ambiguous as to whether we spoke last time about Macbeth's agency about his free will mm-hmm. um, about whether he is truly driving his own um like driving the events of the play his own his own fate and what happens to him or if it's down to like all the outside influences yeah is his floor extrinsic or intrinsic that's something we'll come on to that's a a better way of saying it and i I think where you land on the on this kind of question really determines where you land on the play as a whole and its message you know your interpretation of whether or not Macbeth is this tragic hero figure whether or not he kind of is the master of his own fate or is perhaps, you know, um, subject of misfortunes beyond his control. The way you feel about these issues really determines the way you feel about the play and its message. Absolutely. So it's a really, really interesting episode and looking forward to it. Yeah, not only that, but I think with looking at Macbeth as a tragic hero, it's quite an academic sort of argument to start entering into. And also it allows and opens up the discussion in many different essays. So there was one on an AQA specimen paper recently, which was, a scene where Macbeth was presented in quite a sort of archetypal heroic fashion. Mm -hmm. And the question just alluded to, to what extent is he a hero? And so many candidates would have picked out the features which showed him being brave, linked it to the fact that he's noble and so on, and have not used this sort of springboard there to go into an analysis of tragic hero. Mm -hmm. 
Also, I've seen candidates do a great job of referring to Tragic Hero and Hamasha in essays that seem to be purely on Lady Macbeth or the witches. And actually, there's very few essays, I think, where some sort of argument to do with Macbeth and his flaw and who becomes the ultimate Hamasha for his character. Um, It's just a great thing in terms of revision to focus your thoughts on, really. Yeah, and um, I think the best place to start here when we we start to, well, when we, we see this... Um, kind of trajectory of Macbeth's. The first scene is the witches, and we hear his name, so we know that his yeah. name is the well, one. Obviously, he's the title character. Um, so there's some kind of auspicious nature around this this character. And then the second scene, we still don't meet Macbeth. Um, we see Duncan, um, and he speaks to a wounded soldier who was at the battle where Macbeth had just been fighting on Duncan's side. Um, and we we get this first impression as an as an audience of a brave warrior, um, somebody who seems exceptionally loyal. Um, and the the sergeant, the bloody sergeant, goes on to talk about how um, Macbeth. He calls him brave Macbeth, well he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked bloody execution like Valor's minion, carved out his passage till he faced the slave, which never shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from knave to chops. So I think it's worth looking at that language there. I mean, brave Macbeth's speech for itself. He's obviously mm-hmm. a brave soldier who's ready to put his life on the line. Um, Valor's minion, I think, is an, in, is an interesting quotation to hold on to there. Um, Valor being bravery, being honour, yeah. but being a minion to that. I mean, it has connotations of being somebody who's loyal, who is a yeah. servant. Yeah. Um, and and we uh, again, we immediately see him that way. Um, and then Duncan, when speaking about Macbeth, um, kind of responding to that, calls him valiant cousin, noble Macbeth, peerless kinsman, yeah. Bellona's bridegroom, um, which is like a, a reference to like an ancient goddess of war, um, to say that he that Macbeth is not only kind of like a brave a, a brave and noble character, uh, but it's when you when you look we were talking about archetypes of a hero and of a warrior. Um, if it's somebody who is able to be who is able to fight and put his life on the line and to and to fight for his country and his king, it's more we spoke last time about how we need to look at these characters as humans, and Macbeth is definitely a very human character. But he also has lots of other networks of meaning attached to that. Yeah. If you're if you're the kind of soldier like that is a hero. I mean, the the, the vast majority, well, almost all, not almost all, but a huge huge majority of people reading the play today, as equally to those watching it in um, the 17th century, they would never have any real experience of battle. Um, putting, like we said, uh, kind of putting their life at risk. Yeah. And we have a kind of almost a deified respect for people like that. Yeah. Yeah. So to, for that to be our first impression of Macbeth, I think is really important. It's the second scene. The first scene is very obscure and um, again, it's just the witches. So to see him at the very start, we can only see him as a hero. Absolutely. Um, and that, that seems like we? a really... Uh, what, I, but I think that seems like a really deliberate structural choice by Shakespeare that even before we've got Macbeth, we've got these preconceived ideas about him He's pandering to the audience's idea, kind of heroic ideals, yeah. and it's just really before he's even brought onto the stage, he exists as an idea in our heads. He taps yeah. into this kind of heroic ideal that we already have. Yeah, I think it's interesting when we look at Macbeth as a soldier as well. Yeah. So we see that he's praised for his bravery almost because he's fighting for what they perceive to be the right side. Yeah, it's an acceptable so, form of violence. Absolutely. Yeah. So they describe him in this really brutal fashion, unseeming a traitor. So sort of ripping apart a traitor from his nave, his navel, so his middle area, to his chops, meaning his mouth. Um, and that's a really brutal way to kill someone, okay? Mm-hmm. Yet the way we see people discussing that 
is glorifying that brutality because the cause for his murder there was acceptable because it was about punishing a traitor. Not only does that forebode this cycle of violence that we see in the play, and actually it's interesting that cyclically Shakespeare returns to an image of battle where a traitor's head is chopped off at the end, but that traitor is Macbeth himself. It's interesting that he starts the play with that image of brutality, almost to leave us questioning later that actually, as a soldier, is this someone who has become so accustomed to violence that that is the way he, that's the answer that he sees? I think it, I think it speaks more to the world that he lives in as well. And it's not that, um, I'm, I'm part of the, um, almost not the exoneration of Macbeth, but something where you can kind of understand his later actions yeah. is that he didn't bring violence into this, mm. into Scotland. Scotland was a violent state and, and in a state of war. And also that the, it, we, uh, one of the kind of superficial contextual points is all about masculinity, yeah. like to be what it, what it was yeah. to be a man is to be ambitious and to be a fighter. Uh, but I think there's even, even to a contemporary audience, to, to kill in battle is never seen as a, as a crime. No. Um, it's a kind of, and, you know, rightly or wrongly, it's kind of a, a state-sanctioned murder. It's a political um, necessity. Yeah, yeah and, it, and, it's, and it's seen as, as the right thing to do. There's no real... And, it, and if it's, a, it's a face-to-face fight. It wasn't, he, he wasn't, it wasn't kind of like the murder later yeah. on. He yeah. snuck, he snuck Absolutely, in. Absolutely, It yeah. was something respectable. It was open in combat. Honourable and, and something that, again, raises his status as, as the hero, I think, at the, at the, well, in this second scene of the play. Yeah. But I suppose from the kind of the Jacobean perspective, there's this idea that in, in those early scenes, he's being used as an instrument by the king to uphold and support that, that great chain of being and that kind of divine right of kings. Although he is inflicting violence and doing something which, you know, is kind of very kind of shocking and aggressive, that's to support the natural order of things yeah. the way the world should yeah. be. I suppose and that's why that, I think that, that, mini, that, that term minion, yeah. I just think is... A, he's doing a, someone else's yeah, work yeah, there at this point. The, then the harm comes else. when he takes that, that kind of that agency, he takes that violence and he uses it for his own, own welfare rather than support the, the idea that society is yeah. should so be violence isn't old. bad but it has to be a particular type yeah of it has to support yeah. the king and it has to support the uh, the way society should be that that great chain of being absolutely so moving on from that then we've got you know we've got Macbeth very much foreground at the start of the play as this um, you know as this tragic hero figure and then we see his uh, interaction with the witches and, and then that really kind of starts to develop, doesn't it? So absolutely. At the start, Al talks about how even though he's the title character, the first scene uh, foregrounds this idea of the supernatural. We hear Macbeth mentioned in their dialogue rather than meeting the character himself. And then in Act 1, Scene 3, we see Macbeth meet the witches. Um, and it's quite interesting how um, he mimics their language in that they said at the start, foul, fair is foul and foul is fair, that paradox, that introduction of the theme of appearance versus reality in the play. And then we then see in our first interaction with Macbeth, his use of that language subconsciously, subliminally, and he says, so foul and fair a day I have not seen. And I think that's our first piece of evidence, really, that, is that Macbeth is under some sort of influence from the supernatural. So it's interesting when he speaks to them, even though Banquo is sort of hesitant and refers to them as instruments of darkness and almost is cautious in trusting the witches, mm-hmm. there is a point where, after hearing their prophecies, Macbeth turns to the witches, who, remember, he should be repulsed by. They look not like inhabitants of the earth. They're withered, they're wild, they're on a heath. They're not in the great chain of being. We know at the Jacobean period, this was something that people were realistically very afraid of. Yet Macbeth uses an imperative to say, stay, you imperfect speakers, 
tell me more. Mm. And I just find that language used by Shakespeare really interesting there. So not only has he got the imperative stay, as if to show them that Beth thinks he can exert control over the supernatural, mm. which of course he can't because mm. the stage directions then immediately show them vanishing into yeah. thin air. Yeah. So we've got that irony there in the sense that he thinks he can control the witches, yet he's actually been controlled and manipulated yeah. already by them. But even that recognition with the adjective imperfect, mm -hmm. he notices that almost he shouldn't trust them. Yeah. But he feels like he, sh he can. Well, but just before that, Banquo says to him, once they've both received the, the prophet, well, once Macbeth has received that prophecy, he says, good sir, why do you start and seem to fear things that do sound so fair? Yeah. Um, so I think we, it's almost, that's almost like a microcosm of like a switch, maybe a switch turning in Macbeth yeah. when we talk about the way that he, he um, deteriorates throughout the play. At that point, he's, he's told um, he'll be Fade of Cawdor, yeah. he tells he'll be king hereafter, and he doesn't immediately meet that with open arms, like he's, like he's greedily trying to um, get more information out of them. At first, he starts and seems to fear, and even Banquo's acknowledging to say, you know, this, this sounds really good, why, 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 would, you, why would you be it? afraid of it? Um, but, then, but then, like you said, that's when he, he after they, after, almost after Banquo says that, he says, stay and, and tell me more. Yeah. And it, 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 I think in, in that moment, that scene is really, really interesting in the way it's structured. Again, I do love structure, just coming back to this. So, I mean, we have, you know, Banquo also notices that he's wrapped with all. Yeah. He's kind of completely absorbed in these words of the witches. And in my mind, I always think that in, in something in Macbeth, the switch has been turned on. And it's not that he's afraid of the witches or afraid of what they said. It's he's afraid of what it's woken up within him. Yes, I agree. And it's that. really interesting that in that moment, you know, there, this play is it has a litany of soliloquies, sometimes to the point where almost too many, it's kind of, it's so clear what certain characters think. But in that moment, we don't really know what's going on. Now, in a few scenes, you know, kind of the next scene, pretty much, we see him kind of talking about hiding his, his desires, and he's looking at Malcolm with a, a slight, you know, perhaps aggressive desire there. But in that moment, we don't see inside his mind. We don't see what he's thinking. And it does beg that question of, like, what is he afraid of in that moment? Yeah. What, if he's wrapped with all, what is it that's immediately enraptured his attention? Yeah, it's almost as if, is he so entranced by the vision of the witches because we know they are abhorrent in their appearance, it would be so shocking to stumble upon three women who are seeking him out. Is it that someone actually has verbalised for the first time and awoken within him his innermost desires, okay? And we later see when he communicates the prophecies to his wife that these are not things he's always dreamt of. These are not things that he's actually got in his sort of plan for himself. These are things, like you said, that have been awoken within him. But I think it's interesting as well in terms of, this is something that's a bit of a cliche in kind of the study of English literature, but Freudian theory and looking at the influence of kind of the subconscious and the way it affects your thinking. But a classic thing that psychiatrists do is they show you certain images and they're really interested, if you're a Freudian psychiatrist, in the first associations you have with those images. Mm -hmm. So when the witches say you are kind of to be king, it's really interesting to think what would be the first things that would spring to his mind. Now we deny that insight and we don't know. We know later on when he's a moment to reflect and think, we know the way he thinks but we don't know in that moment what his initial reaction is. And it would be really interesting because if you're a Freudian, you would say the initial reaction reveals your deepest desires. But he yeah. hides that. But he, but he says in the letter to Lame Earth, I burned in desire to know more. Like we said, he was wrapped. So it's that kind But of then thing. even that act of writing a letter, writing a letter yeah. is a very considered... Like, yeah. When we write, After we put moment. a lot more thought into what we write than what we say. I think Macbeth as a character is very difficult to examine his psyche, isn't it? Because he does lie so often in the play and yeah. manipulate and 
sort of cloud what he really thinks. So even to himself at times. Absolutely. Just after this, he speaks to Banquo. And Banquo asks, uh, he says, I dreamt of the Weird Sisters last night. And Macbeth replies, I think not of them. Which we know is an absolute lie because he's communicated how enthralled and enraptured enraptured by them he was to Lady Macbeth. So we know he's lying. So it's quite difficult to examine how he feels. One other subtlety in Shakespeare's craft here is that he uses rhyming couplets to show how malleable and potentially the influence that the supernatural have had over Macbeth. Mm -hmm. So at the start, they speak in rhyming couplets and that creates that sort of chant-like atmosphere um, as if they're almost playing around, like creating nursery rhymes or spells or whatever. And then before every murder, really interestingly, Macbeth will give a rhyming couplet. Yeah. So the first one is, for hear it not, Duncan, for this is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. Great line. Now, just before every murder, it seems like a very strange thing for someone to do, okay? To be in that moment of composure, to feel so calculated before you're about to commit that act of regicide, to come up with that rhyme. So there's many ways we can see this. We can see this as a character who's fully in control of their actions and has the moment to compose himself to say something so methodical and calculated. Or we can see it on the flip side, that this is a character who is almost entranced, someone who is uh, transfixed by a spell that they're yeah, under. I think I always find, with, I always think with that line that it, it, um, it's, it contrasts a lot to the, the preceding um, kind of like the soliloquy with the dagger. Yeah. And where he, see, he seems to be very introspective and he yeah. seems to be big, like terrified, but also um, questioning himself and doubting himself. Yeah. And then the bell rings and it's like, again, it's that switch. And the way he says that reminds me of kind of like the the, the psychopath who's about to you know look in your eyes as you as you as your lights go out. It's yeah. kind of like look at that that pleasure in killing. Um, and that really, I think that comes across as quite a disturbing um, image with Macbeth. So it's almost it's almost a comic relief kind of yeah. line. I yeah. feel, but the, but then that in itself is even more disturbing because, because he's because so willing he, to do yeah, that yeah, in the face of what he's he doing. So detached, absolutely, he's committing regicide, yeah. isn't he? And yeah. this is someone who has just promised to offer him the world. This is someone who his worthy cousin, you know, yeah. someone who he's servant to. But then, I mean, in terms of this interpretation, is it perhaps showing the influence of the witches? I think it's really important to note that even before he meets the witches, he's already mimicking their language with yeah. that foul is fair and fair is foul, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think, I'm going to come on to this a little bit more later, but I think for me, the interpretation is that something is being unearthed within him. It's yeah. not that he's being, you know, influenced and shaped, but rather that the true nature within him is being revealed as the play goes forward yeah and I think that for me that's what the Roman cup is it just reveals the growth of his the darkness within him yeah. yeah and then and then kind of moving on from the influence of the witches is the influence of well, arguably the fourth witch which is Lady Macbeth um, and so we go on to Act 1 scene 5 and we, we meet Lady Macbeth reading the letter from Macbeth where he talks about the, what we just said he's wrapped and he's burning with desire um, and straight away she, she starts to give us this assessment of his character mm-hmm. um, to talk about from her point of view um, the fact that he has, he's not without ambition and yet he lacks the illness that, that should attend um, also says that he is too, fill of the, too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way so she's saying that he that he's an ambitious character she recognizes that in him um and yet he seems to be too 
too weak or too compassionate to actually go through with what's necessary um, so to actually to, to fulfill that ambition and, and just as before I, I spoke about how important it was that Macbeth was absent from the scene and other people were talking yeah. about and our first impression of him being this, this, this heroic character I think it's really important the fact that we recognise that Lady Macbeth and the, the kind of validity of that assessment from Lady Macbeth um, and I, I feel that Considering that when in a previous scene when he just said when Malcolm had become been made Prince of Cumberland and Macbeth says um, that is a step on which I must fall down or else overleap, yeah. which basically means I'm going to have to kill Malcolm yeah. as well um, or or give up. And then he and he says this is an aside just to the audience, you know, stars hide your fires, let not light see my black and deep desires. And he's he's starting to recognise and fear that that um, kind of that well the ambition which is within him, but really the fear of being found out yeah. yeah he's terrified of being found out um he doesn't want anybody to see he wants heaven itself to be to to kind of like to hide its fire to stop um shedding light on anything that could could reveal the, um these 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 thoughts that he's having and yet he shares those thoughts almost instant well you said it was like you made the choice to yeah. write but in terms of the pace of the play he he shares them instantly with his wife yeah. um by a letter which of course could have been read yeah by and, and that's a risky move in itself yeah and uh I think that just showed that really speaks to how well she must know him, how close they were, and kind of speaks to the, the almost the tragedy of the the break in their relationship, Absolutely. just as much as there's obviously a huge breakdown in in kind of the the the, the country itself. Um, so just looking at those terms, so it says that he lacks the illness that should attend, um, and again, there's an acknowledgement of in order to fulfil ambition, you have to have a certain sickness, um, be able to to go th- to commit terrible acts, um, and she is desperate to be to be the one to kind of like where she says, "I will hide thee hither, so that I may pour mine spirits in thine ear." Pour my spirits in thine ear. Um, she she wants to be the one who is able to kind of like push him over the edge. He can walk himself there. But she needs to push him over yeah. the edge because he she, he has that that loyalty, um, that compassion, or possibly um, well, the morality. Look, yeah, the morality as well, and and that's really clear. And that too full of the milk of human kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's milk, it's it's mercy, it's maternal, it's compassionate, um, and to and, and if she, and if she's yeah, and if she's seen that within him, it's innocent, yeah, innocent and pure as well. If she's seen that within him. Um, but she doesn't start. see it as an honourable trait. She sees it no, as a threat. No, but the something audience, that's going to get audience, in his way. Yeah, I feel the audience would see it that way um, because obviously, they, it, at this point, he's still kind of in this state of ambiguity where yeah. he might he might go through with a murder or he might not. He's kind of he, again, he's he's kind of having that moral trade off. So we can see that link, can't we, between Lady Macbeth and her husband? So. They are almost on an equal footing at the start of the play and he communicates through a letter and it's very important uh, dramatically that we see her expose her innermost feelings through this soliloquy. We can imagine that, you know, as a woman at that time, she wouldn't have been able to speak like that if she was surrounded by anyone else. She obviously feels quite safe and quite comfortable in what she's saying because a lot of it is so shocking and so Mm -hmm. abhorrent. And I think actually that confirms the fact that we can trust her assessment of Macbeth because she's speaking from that raw emotion there, isn't she? Um, And it's really interesting. He refers to her as my dearest partner of greatness. And pupils will often pick this quote to explore. And I quite like that because there's so much to tap into there from the possessive pronoun my, which could hint at the idea of possessiveness and ownership, Mm -hmm. potentially because she was seen as his property at the time. We've got the adjective dearest, that's superlative to show, you know, just how much he does value her and their relationship the equality that comes with the use of partner 
and that foreshadowing there that what they're in it together is for greatness mm-hmm. and the idea that it is about the crown that she already envisages on her head and they're in it as a team. Yet towards the end, when he feels like he's almost done with Lady Macbeth, she served her purpose in fueling his fire and now he can do it without her, he dismisses her and says, be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck. Mm-hmm. And I just find it really interesting that the omission of the possessive my, for a starter, and the repetition of dearest, but now almost to refer to her as this Chuck, this flightless bird, it's as if to say, you now have no further purpose to serve. You have nowhere yeah. to go, rather whereas than, I am on to greater it's things a, it's without a you. It's a rather than Absolutely. a partner. Yeah. Absolutely. And we can see again the link between them. You said, Al, how they both uh, call upon nature. So arrogant to think that they can control nature now, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, they put themselves on that position in the great chain of being. They now see themselves almost as deities who can command the weather and... It's almost well, like supernatural. So yeah, that supernatural element there. And so from Macbeth, stars had your fires, and that links to Lady Macbeth in the soliloquy, where she says, Come thick night and pull thee in the dun smoke of hell. Yeah. So I think when we're looking at Lady Macbeth and his sort of suggestibility from his wife, mm. um, we can really find evidence here that a lot of what she says then spurs a reaction from him. Um, and I think you're going to come on to look at the way she really uses emasculation techniques to get him to do yep. the deed for her. Yep. So I think it's important um, when we talk about their relationship, especially to like refocus this on Macbeth as a tragic hero, um, is to look at his soliloquy in Act One, Scene Seven. So he's come back to he's come back to his castle. He's met with Lady Macbeth. They've kind of um, verbally agreed that they're going to go through with this with this murder. Um, and then Macbeth has this very introspective soliloquy where he talks about all the um, all the reasons why he shouldn't do it. Trump um, and in this soliloquy, he really um, he lists all the reasons why he shouldn't kill, shouldn't go through with it, um, and they range from fear. Um, he fears that the, the poison chalice of murder uh, or regicide um, kind of returns to plague the inventor, well, bloody instructions which return to plague the inventor. Um, and then he talks about the, the guilt that he feels that he should, as his kinsman, um, his subject, and his and his host, um, protect him, not hold the knife you know hold the uh, guard the door not bear the knife um and then he talks about he reflects on duncan himself who's bought has borne his faculty so meek talks about what a good man he was a good king he was and to to kill somebody like that and we said we said that regicide is is more than murder because to kill a king is to kill something much more than a person. Mm. Um, He's been divinely chosen. Just, yeah, and just as, and also just as, if we talk about the archetype of the hero, just as he, just as a hero is is um, embedded in these networks of meaning, so the king is embedded in networks of meaning. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot going on beyond just the simple the simple act. I'm not trivialising murder, but the act of killing. Um, it it goes a lot further than that. And he taught and he uses this kind of biblical, this religious imagery to talk about how. To kill somebody like that, um, someone so good and someone of such high office, it would almost necessarily cause a kind of heavenly reaction. Yeah. The angels would plead trumpet-tongued um, would bl- and it would blow the horrid deed into, into every eye. Um, and, that, and then finally he says that this kind of like just kind of confirms his, his decision at this point not to go through with the murder. He says that he recognises that the only thing he has driving him is vaulting ambition. Um, he has nothing to, uh, to prick the sides of his intent but vaulting ambition, which overleaps itself and falls upon the other. So I feel like with Macbeth, 
you can you can look at this in one in a few ways. You can look at it as, as he's still got this kind of shred of humanity left in him. Mm. Um, he still wants to he want he recognises his obligations to, to to Duncan. He is still a heroic character. Um, but really, the thing that the thing that's holding him back is fear. He's he's scared of what the consequences will be. He knows that if he goes through with this, or he's convinced himself that if he goes through with this, Definitely. it can only Damnation end, it can only end a disaster. And it's and I think what's really interesting and, and kind of like it's important to notice is that Macbeth is absolutely certain at this point he's not going to go through with the murder. He goes and tells Lady Macbeth, "We will go no further." And her reaction is to instantly um, go sh- like full on manipulation. Questioning his masculinity, um, you know, she, she asked, was the hope drunk in which you dressed yourself? Has it slept since and woken up green? Um, she, she, she mocks him as a coward. She asks, art thou feared to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Um, so she's saying, she's saying that um, you're, afraid, you're afraid to go through and actually take what you want. And that's what, you Even know... Even though um, it's accepted between us now, that is yeah, what and you want. Exactly. Um, and, you know, he, he, he resists a little bit, but then she really uses quite horrific and violent imagery to say that if it was... What he's done is basically the equivalent, in her estimation, yeah. as taking a child who she's fed at her breast yeah. and dashing its brains against the wall. That is how horrific this crime of making breaking this enterprise yeah. to her and then backing out from it. Um, and within the space of a few of, of a couple of minutes on stage, we've gone from Macbeth being absolutely certain he's not going to go through with this act to then saying he's bent to he, he, he bends to do it and I think that's an important word to say that he he recognises that he's bowing down to her because yeah. I know that there's, a, there's a, I think you've got a bit of contention here Ted to say yeah. that Lady Macbeth is probably not as big an influence as, as, as we're suggesting here but if we're talking about Macbeth this powerful heroic Thane a warrior an exceptionally masculine character to say that he, he, he he's he bends only emasculated yeah by he her. is and she emasculates him and those gender roles are subverted she is very much the dominant figure mm-hmm. in especially in act in act one well i, I think I, w- I would definitely agree with that she employs hyper masculine language but i think from my interpretation why that's so effective is really really important so i think it comes down to if we're saying Macbeth is a tragic hero there's two two options one is that he's a tragic hero because his hamartia is his ambition the other is that he is ultimately a figure who's very malleable who's very impressionable and open to the influence of others now, I've always been a lot more um, interested in, in the former interpretation, this idea that he's a character who's fundamentally ambitious and through a series of unfortunate events that might not have happened, this kind of monstrous ambition within him, this overvolting ambition, is unleashed. And that ultimately leads him to his, his doom. But if you hadn't met the witches, if these series of events hadn't happened, just like you or I, if, if these things didn't happen, this never would have been unleashed. None of this would have happened. So I, I always think that Shakespeare is like... What makes his plays so compelling and why we study them and why they resonate through the ages is the insight he gives us into human psychology. And a great example of this is Hamlet's famous soliloquy, you know, um, to be or not to be, is that the question? You know, and that's such a... That is the question. (laughs) That is the question. And that's a real life mistake we're going to keep in because we all misquote. So that's, you know, that's a question that resonates even now. And that's something that, you know, that's the question of, is life worth living? Is, Is this worth the bother? And he gets at things that, I think ask fundamental question of what it is to be human and the flaws we have. And I think we really see that in this play. So, you know, looking at Macbeth, I think it is about this idea of ambition and, and not the, the supernatural sideshow. I think it's too tempting to blame the witches, to blame Lady Macbeth for Macbeth's flaws. And when I think of Shakespeare's intentions, I tend to think of him not as someone who would blame this 
yeah, abstract concept of evil, not as someone who was afraid of witches, but as someone who recognised that ultimately our, our downfall and, and our evil is internal. Yeah. That the demons that we must face in life aren't out there, aren't witches, aren't these kind of outside figures who we blame for all these strange events, but ultimately the, the choices that we make and why we make them. So coming back to this kind of that, that quotation that Emily mentioned, stay you in perfect speakers, I think that's a really important introduction to Macbeth's true character. And you know, Aristotle introduced this idea of the lie of the soul, which is basically that the biggest lies we tell are the lies we tell ourselves. Yeah. And I think Beth, in that moment, you see him torn from the very beginning in that he is afraid of the witches on one level, but he orders them to stay, whilst also recognising, as you guys have said, that they are imperfect speakers. And the moment he orders them to stay, I think that's when he becomes a tragic hero, because that's when he commits back. Yeah. He commits in that moment to unleashing this, this evil that's within him. And you know, that, and in one moment he kind of thinks he's not going to do that, but and he thinks he's kind of still has a choice to make. But that's the lie of the soul. He's already made some subconscious decision yeah. to commit to this path of evil. And then later on we see it again. So he writes this letter to Lady Macbeth, and on one level she responds to this. She comes up with this brilliant Machiavellian plan to manipulate him and get him to do what she wants. But we need to ask the question: well, Why does he write the letter to Lady Macbeth in the first place? Well, it's clear that she's a real confidant for him, someone who he trusts. But why does he trust her? And that leads us to the question, well, why did he marry Lady Macbeth in the first place? He must have realised the first time he met Lady Macbeth, she was not your normal woman. She was not your typical kind of um, lady in, in Duchess or whatever of the time. She had something that was quite different. And I think what would have made Macbeth attracted to her is that she gives him what he needs. Sometimes he might have some morality or something within him that holds him from holds him back from achieving what he really wants. And at some subconscious level, he recognised in her the woman who would give him the push he needed to that achieve illness this. that should attend exactly. him to achieve the ambition. And he's attracted to that because that's what he really wants. And when we see kind of, you know, in relationships, people are often attracted to someone they feel they need in life. We often, it's always the expression, opposites attract. You see, you go into Topshop or something like that, you see some man who's hopeless, who can't pick out his own clothes, being berated by his wife. But it's this idea that Beth um, is attracted to Lady Macbeth because what she can bring him and that needness that she has. And, you know, we've spoken about this idea that she... You know, he refers to her as a great partner. Mm. Well, why? And part of me can't help but feel she's a great partner because she thinks in exactly the same way he wants to think. But he calls her not a great partner. He calls her a partner of greatness. And even the language used there shows that once he achieves the greatness on his own, he doesn't feel like he needs her anymore. But then what would the... That, the, re, the fact he's, he's recognised her partner as greatness is not that she's a great partner, but a partner to achieve greatness with yeah. or perhaps greatness through. And then this idea that she emasculates him. Well, why is she able to emasculate him? Because he's insecure about his masculinity. Because he's not been able to provide an heir. And I think there's the hint at some sort of acts that have happened before the events of the play beginning when she says, I know how tender it is to love the babe that's milked yeah, me. Yeah. And the idea that potentially he's not been able to provide her with, with, a, with a baby. Mm-hmm. and they may have lost a child. So we actually start to see this character who, on many levels, is suffering from trauma. You know, he's, he's witnessed a war, he's been involved in conflict, he's then lost children, maybe multiple, and then he has his wife who berates him, just like the mm-hmm. women in Topshop, <laughs> for the man he is, which is actually a fundamentally good man. He's a fame. This is not your average man on the street. This is someone who's been entrusted with a title. Duncan, the king, has prom- promised to plant him and offered him a future. But I, I, I do think Lady Macbeth overestimates her influence. You know, she says he doesn't have the illness that should attend it. And we come back to this idea that she's somehow able to emasculate him into committing murder. 
Well, let's just consider this for a second. That scene is so pivotal where he says, we will proceed no further in this business. I love that quotation. We will proceed no further in this business. He's made the decision. Then she uses this hyper-masculine, hyper-aggressive language of bashing in that baby's skull. And it was repulsive. It's shocking. Mm. And all of a sudden, he says, if we should fail. Now, earlier, as Alice pointed out, we had the yeah. quotation, the angels plead trumpet tongues yeah. against the deep damnation of deed. We, should, we shouldn't be doing these things. And all of a sudden, he's just flipped around and he says, if we should fail. And that reveals why he's not doing it. It's not that it's the wrong thing to do. It's not that Duncan's a good man. It's the fear of getting caught. And in asking that question, if we should fail, he reveals that it's his ambition that is his amartya, not this impressionability. It's the fact that he wants to do it and he's afraid. And maybe Lady Macbeth does give him that push, but that's why he married her in the first place. So there'd be someone with in there to pour those spirits into his ear so he'd do what ultimately, subconsciously, he does want to do. I, I, I agree with a lot, a lot of what you're saying there, Ted, and I think what really proves it is just how little Lady Macbeth influences events after Act mm-hmm. One. Yeah. Um, so we see when when Macbeth sees Banquo, when well, when Macbeth is um, planning the the, the the assassination of Banquo, Lady Macbeth is trying to be kind of like a calming influence. He says, "Full of scorpions is my mind." Yeah. Um, he he realizes going through this kind of he's kind of descending into paranoia um, and. She's, and he said he basically says that he that he's in blood step too far um, and he's ready yeah. he needs to keep going yeah. um, and she she almost is trying to be involved in in this um in the planning whatever he wants to do and he, that's when he's like the quotation you, you um, said before be innocent of the knowledge dearest Chuck so at this point he, he's broken away from her mm. um, he bec- he is kind of like become pure defiance and ruthlessness um, and she starts to fall away from him and they their break happens and I think the fact that by the end um, and that that famous um, metaphor about life being a walking shadow yeah. when yeah. he talks about her death um, that's really the way he one of the reasons why that is so disturbing I mean it's disturbing to, to his contemporaries because to Shakespeare's contemporaries simply because of the nihilistic outlook and the, the way that he, he trivialises the mm-hmm. crimes and trivialises yeah. the sanctity of life um, but it's disturbing to us kind of like watching watching and reading as a as a um, a, a modern audience simply on a human level the fact that he 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 is told about her death as if it's somebody he, he used to he used to know it's well not it's delivered who, to him isn't it by servants yeah, but, my, the queen my lord is dead yeah and, and that's the actually he, the first time she's referred to as queen which is so poignant in the play yeah and, uh, but, but that's true as well actually but I was just I was more referring to the fact that he, the way he the way he reacts is that he she should have died here after yeah. there would have been time for such a yeah. and and it's the fact, the fact that by that point in the play, she's become so irrelevant. The only, the only real return she makes is when she's sleepwalking and she talk and she seems to lament um, Macduff's wife, the Thane of Fife, had a wife, and yeah. and she sees the blood on her hands and out dance part and etc. Um, and she's moved from this person who's able to, who says like a little water clears us of this deed. She's been the, she's the person who's controlling him. We didn't actually speak about that then, but an important, I think another important thing is immediately after the murder, Lady Macbeth is the one who is um, kind of like calm and cool and collected and whilst Macbeth is losing his mind in yeah. guilt and kind of this kind of um, he's just he's just lost he's just we're all great Neptune's ocean cleansed claimers of this yeah deed. and Macbeth will sleep no more and things like that but he but the fact the fact yeah so what the only point I was making is that the fact that she falls away is, might speak to Shakespeare's um, overall message that she was never really mm-hmm. the, the important the most important influence on Macbeth and if we look at his his 
trajectory or downward trajectory from the hero to the, to yeah. someone who's fallen. Um, I think again she provides maybe a little push. Yeah, but he's the one who's true. He had that uh, vaulting ambition yeah, with him. I think she tends to start. Heroine underestimate Macbeth and his ambition and overestimate the power of her own ambition mm. in that she thinks she's going to be able to escape guilt-free when the opposite is the truth. While Macbeth, yeah. you know, she, that expression, she creates a monster beyond her control, yeah. like yeah. Frankenstein. Yeah, so I think the final thing then really is looking at how Macbeth ends the play. So as you see the denouement of the play, we see a character who actually tries to return to the original act of heroism. It ends, like I alluded to at the start, with another battle. Um, and this one, Macbeth seems to see coming, okay? So he realises towards the end that the witches have tricked him, they've played him like the instrument that he is, they've manipulated him, they recognised, Hecate recognised that security is mortal's chiefest enemy. So security there meaning overconfidence. What they did is they gave him these sort of Prophecies with a loophole is always how I try to say it. They don't lie yeah. to him, but they, they trick him into feeling secure, feeling overconfident, and then all of that unravels at great speed, really, towards the end of the play. And I think just that that's kind of what we spoke about last time in, in the power of the witches. They seem to be this... Um, they've they've been I've heard them described as kind of like lots of different thoughts about witches at the time into into what well three beings but they're the, they're a quite a unique form of witch of, of that kind of agent of the devil however you want to say it but the way that, that their power seems to be quite limited um, and very very much limited to mischief not necessarily yeah. the kind of the, the force that can impact politics yeah. like that so again and it, it's happens. just always an interesting thought experiment if you take the witches out of the play. Nothing actually changes, yeah. really. And, and it does, is, Lady, is the role of Lady Macbeth enough? If you take Lady Macbeth out of the play and you just have the witches, what still happens? If you take them both out, does, does, does nothing happen? Yeah. It, it's just yeah. interesting to consider the, the, the different potential outcomes. Well, yeah, but it also, it, I think just another thing, that, like, obviously it's a work of fiction, um, so they, you can talk about counterfactual claims, like, what if Lady Macbeth didn't do that, yeah. what if the witches didn't do that, but really this is, this is Macbeth, right, um, this is Shakespeare writing a piece to, to pose questions about this, to pose questions about agency, to pose questions about, um, about, about the flaw and about where, whether heroes fall or whether we're all kind of like, are we all fundamentally flawed and mm. what would happen if we do kind of like follow our most... Um, like shameful instincts um, so and without so you almost deals with a world in which religion isn't enough or the sense of a damnation isn't enough to deter people from wrongdoing mm-hmm. and I think actually for modern audiences that kind of idea is maybe easy for us to grapple with whereas yeah. at the time the thought of someone rejecting the idea of an afterlife and basically saying I'll take damnation I'll take whatever I'll yeah. do my acts on earth for what they are yeah it's almost easy for us as a modern audience to see how someone could dismiss that. Whereas, you know, in the Jacobean time, to go against God, to go against the king, to go against your friend, to go against your wife, and and the ultimate betrayal in the play is himself. He betrays himself. And I do think, returning to our original thesis, which is that Macbeth is a typical hero at the start, I think actually the true Macbeth potentially reoccurs at the end. We see him describe himself in a more valiant sense. He says, I will face it like a man. And, he's, and he goes to Macbeth knowing that he's going to die because he knows... Uh, sorry, so he goes to Macduff yeah. and he knows he's going to face it like a man. He's going to face his death. But it's interesting, so to kind of... A, a potential argument against that is this idea that he ultimately, even though he fights bravely at the end, you know, in that moment of... Uh, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, uh, anagnosis is. 
Um, in, in that I moment, you did say it, right? I don't know, probably. Do, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Uh, in, in that, in that, Agnostic. In that, Agnosticist. in that moment, when Macbeth realizes he's kind of doomed, he is ultimately just fighting for himself. And while he's trying to use the same violence, that violence isn't used to support the great chain of being. Yeah. It isn't used to support yeah. the divine right of kings. It's that a desperation that, that really, at the end, isn't that it? That really important quotation, which applies to this, applies to kingship, is um, for mine own good, all other yeah. causes shall give way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's at three, scene five, I think. Might be wrong, but it's at three. But he's just basically talking about how it's all about me. You know, yeah. I don't care about anybody else. Yeah. I don't care about my, like you said, I don't care about my wife, friends, king, a country. It's all about my own good and, and self-preservation. I think that's why it is, you know, ambition that this is a martyr because... The play tends to lead us to think that, you know, people who are driven by ambition and, and succumb to that desire will ultimately, you know, if they seek to usurp the kind of the, the natural order and the great chain of being, will come to, to a sticky end. Mm-hmm. But also that on some level it makes them unfit for the, the throne they desire. Yeah. That you need to be, like, you know, anointed by God to be worthy of that. And obviously the brilliant thing about kind of being born into the royal family is that ambition is unnecessary. Because you are just People born into who the family. Are given that title, don't well, require exactly. The they don't need do the ambition. Yeah. So the ambition is almost irrelevant. They need to be good rulers, and we see that with Malcolm. They need to be kind of cautious and considerate. And the, the Machiavellian stuff comes in there. They're kind of being a wise ruler, but ambition isn't necessarily something they need because they're born into it. But the only way anyone else could become king mm-hmm. is through a, yeah. a almost reckless ambition to usurp yeah. the natural order and risk and chaos. Who is, and who is the most kind of like uh, infamous? Uh, king in that respect historically is Richard III who kind yeah. of like preceded well I think it was like I don't know what six kings yeah. preceded uh, um, James by five or six monarchs um, and that's the, the guy who like kills the princesses in the yeah. tower and he's seen as this um, and Shakespeare wrote a whole play on him as yeah, well yeah exactly so it's, he's written as an exceptionally vicious this, uh, this conservative yeah, message that you know ambition in relation to the throne is this dangerous thing and you know we bring it all back to that idea of King James I and, and, the and the divine right of kings and that you know it is, it's a burden that is, is given to you that you don't take mm-hmm. and that indeed if you were to take it that would prove you were fundamentally not worth it you know there's yeah. that kind of quote anyone who wants to be a leader shouldn't be a leader yeah and yeah. We, I think we see that in the instance with Macbeth and well his... Shakespeare ensures his downfall doesn't he so he ensures and it's absolutely necessary that Shakespeare crafts a character who suffers that downfall and yeah. suffers as a result of trying to usurp his great place in the great chain of being trying to go against the divine right of kings who's committed regicide who's committed all acts of betrayal mm-hmm. it is essential that we see Macbeth in the final scene be referred to as the dead butcher. Yeah. So I think we almost see that return back to the man who unseen someone from the nave to yeah. the chops, but now it is so methodical, it's so without cause, without reason, he does it without any thought. He is a butcher. Yeah. And I think that, that that's true and kind of, I think that puts pay to the, to the argument where can he be considered a quintessential tragic hero? We know that he, he has some uh, tropes of the tragic hero, but to say that his downfall was probably more than he deserved, I think, isn't true. I mean, yeah. he'd, he'd, he'd kind of already engineered his own downfall. And he'd accepted it in the soliloquy yeah. where he said, I'm accepting damnation here. Yeah, yeah. He, he recognises in himself and what the, his exact da- fatal to, flaw is, the unfolding ambition. To die in battle is almost a, a fate too good for him, considering... So I'd say from... Because I'd say that because of his death, which was probably better than he deserved, considering everything that he did and um, the crimes that he committed, the people he betrayed, we can't really see Macbeth as a tragic hero. Some tropes of a tragic hero, but not enough to be the certainly not the quintessential. Mm. And it's quite interesting that the idea of tragic hero uses an idea that a balance is restored at the end, and then kind yeah. of like once that that flaw is dealt with. 
it restores good in the world. And while that we do see the, the face of that in Macbeth, there's also the idea that it's entirely cyclical. So the Thane of Cord, you know, the Thane of Cordor is this great betrayer has been killed. Well, the last time that happened, there was more issues. Yeah, and, yeah. We we never see kind of yeah. the kind of what happens next. It begs the question. We know the that we, at, some point, at some point, Bancroft's kids are going to have to yeah. take over. So and it, who and knows it, Malcolm's I think it just hints at kind of to an extent. This is quite a cynical possible interpretation. I don't think one King James first would want, but the inevitability of political turmoil, perhaps because of the inevitability of ambition. Yeah, in uh, those close to power. So is he a tragic hero? Uh, indeed. So let's see what we can think. Is he a tragic hero? So let's see what we think in a sentence. We'll start with our history man on the spot. <laughs> My vote's already been cast. Um, I'd say he's not the tragic hero. I would say he is a tragic hero and that ambition is his hamartia. And I would probably say, and, you know, I think it's, it's easy to blame a woman for a man's downfall. Often, you know, it is. But actually, I'd say... He is a tragic hero and his hamartia is his suggestibility and his willingness to allow the three weird sisters and the fourth witch, Lady Macbeth, to control his fate. Anyway, that's enough from us. Uh, Plenty of food for thought for you there. Uh, It's uh, goodbye from me, Ted. It's goodbye from me, Emily. And goodbye from me, Alex. See you later, English nerds. Bye. Bye.